Well done, thank you very much, Sarah Tynan, Eurydice, Harry Bickett, the conductor of Orpheus and Eurydice. Lovely to have you both on the panel, and I thought that was the perfect way to kick off. This is Eurydice gradually leaving the underground. I don't mean the tube, I mean Elysium or Hades or wherever, and wondering why her Orpheus isn't turning around to smile and hold her hand and look at her, and she's feeling increasingly anxious, worried, angry, confused. Wonderful, wonderful aria, and thank you, Harry, for, for playing it. Harry will be conducting the, the, the whole performance of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, the Gluck Opera. It's lovely to be here in, in studio, Wayne McGregor. It's very even nicer to have Wayne on the panel with us. Thank you for being here, Wayne, and a lot to ask you about. And Soraya, who is playing, I don't know whether your love, amor, um, uh, eros, but your all of those things, so lovely to have you near me. Um, what I want to do this evening is say a little bit about the opera, about Gluck, the various versions of it, the history of it. It's a very important opera, historically, a kind of reform kind of opera of its time, and based on a very famous and important myth, of course. So I'll say a little bit about the opera and about the composer, and then we'll open, I'll open, I'll start asking the panel questions. And then, with luck, I'm sure, we'll have time to open to the floor and hear the questions that you wish uh, to ask. So thank you for being here tonight. Um, you probably know, I'm sure you do know, of course, that the Gluck uh, Orpheus and Eurydice is part of a four Orpheus opera season that the Vienna are putting on. In addition to the, 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 the Gluck, the famous, um, there's, uh, and rather as a contrast, there's Offenbach, uh, Orpheus in the Underground with all the can-can. Um, there is the, the Harry Bertwistle, Harrison Bertwistle's Mask of Orpheus, um, pr originally produced, I think, at the Colosseum. And he, the composer, recently had an 85th birthday, so quite right to make that part of the festival. Um, and finally, a fourth Orpheus opera, Philip Glass, based in, in, in part, I, 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 I haven't seen it, but I understand based on the Jean Cocteau film or films of Orpheus back in the, the 70s. And I think, Sarah, am I right, you're going to be Eurydice again? Yes. So you're going to be, I mean, last time I saw Sarah, she was sitting up in the sky on the moon, singing Villa um, in, in, in The Merry Widow, and now she's, I hate to say it, but descended very, very low down twice. Uh, so those are the, the four operas. And I hope you'll get tickets to go and see all four of them. I certainly very much look forward to this whole Orpheus festival. Of course, the whole Orpheus myth goes back to ancient times. Uh, it's there in Ovid and elsewhere. And if you look back over the history of opera, the very first, what came to be called operas, tended to be about ancient Greek myths like that. In fact, the, the first of the most famous, what we now call operas, would be the Monteverdi, um, L'Orfeo, I think 1607. This is 150 years later and a, a, a different uh, type of opera altogether. I'm sure you know the basic story, very simple story. If you want dramatic opera with lots of exciting events and ABA arias and suddenly somebody comes on with a sword and, all, and he's gonna grab my wife, and, then go to old-fashioned, as it seemed then, opera seria. Think of some of the Handel operas written in London not so very long before this. This is a new way of writing opera. Gluck was keen to reform opera. So dramatically, it's very, very simple. Musically, parts of it are incredibly beautiful. The dance of the blessed spirits and so on. And the most famous of all, the arias. You know, da 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 da. I'm, I'm not playing the part of Orpheus, so I, but think Captain Ferrier or Janet Baker and so on. <laughs> um, it's basically Orpheus and Eurydice, young lovers, husband and wife, ecstatically happy. She dies. She's dead. She's had a snake bite or whatever. And he goes into the deepest imaginable despair and... Like all of us, when you lose something that is 
impossible to get back. You kind of emotionally dream that somehow you can. Think of the biblical story. Think of the resurrection. I mean, it's a fundamental human desire, imagination, hope. And in this opera, the Gluck opera, love comes and says to poor Orpheus, or Orpheus was not able to be here tonight, Alice Coote is taking the role, and she's not very well, but she's well on the mend. So love comes and says to Orpheus, you obviously love that woman enormously, and you know, no, listen to me, I know you're in despair, um, I can help you get her back. And he can't believe it at first, and then he does, but there's a condition when you go down to hell or Hades or wherever it might be, Elysium, you mustn't turn back and look at her. If you do, she'll die again. He says, oh, then fine, you know, self-control. We then see him descending. There are the furies that don't want him to get through, but he lulls them with his beautiful music. Remember the traditional image of Orpheus with his lyre. And he gets through and begins to lead Eurydice out and upwards, doesn't look back, and she is thrilled a bit, can't believe her luck, but begins to get upset when he doesn't look back or hold her hand, and then sings that incredibly, uh, incredible aria. And he gets into such a state that he, he just looks back, at which point, of course, she goes into her death again. And he's in the deepest despair. He sings the what is life to me without you, the famous aria. But at the very end, right towards the end, love comes back and says, well, you've obviously shown such fidelity and love of her and integrity that the gods are going to bring you back together again. And this particular opera, but they're all a bit different, all the Orpheus operas, they end up uh, together again. What's unusual about it, as I say, it's a simple drama. It's the most richly beautiful music. The dance of the Furies, the dance of the blessed spirits. There's a flute, um, uh, a lovely, lovely piece. Various arias. But it doesn't have story, secco, recitative, the harpsichord, like some of the earlier operas did. It's, it's, it's all orchestra-linked. There's a great deal more chorus and a great deal more dance integrated into the drama than anything that had ever been before. It's first composed or fir first performed in, I think, 1762, I think, if I'm right. And it's done in Vienna, the headquarters of the, 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 the Habsburg Empire. I think uh, Empress Maria Theresa is there. Um, wonderful work, if you enter the spirit of it. Not quite what people were expecting from it. All opera was Italian. Orfeo ed Euridice. Che farò senza Euridice. That's what you had to do. That's what Handel did when he was in London. Um, and then some years later, a dozen years later, he's a great wanderer, a great traveler, Gluck. He's in Paris where for a century, ever since Louis XIV and, and, and Lully, they did French, even though Lully was an Italian by origins. It had to be sort of um, tragédie lyrique. And he rewrote it, he updated it, uh, of course, to a French uh, libretto, and a lot more integrated dance, orchestral sections. And yet it's still not a drama in, in, in that sense. Gluck was by now very famous. He uh, went uh, back to Vienna. He died there some years later in the, in the 1780s when young, young Wolfgang was around already by then, wondering why he wasn't more famous. And in the 19th century, Gluck becomes a kind of inspiration to people like Wagner, who wants to integrate music, drama, dance, text, the whole mix in this most multimedia of all art forms. Berlioz, very similar. And in fact, I think it's a basically Berlioz score that you will be using, which I'll ask about in, in just a moment. You know, what did that mean 
by, by that time. And the opera is about so much more than just its story. It's, of course, about love and death and the psychological desire to regain what we have lost. It's about art, the arts, music in particular, as a kind of inspiration. This is the time of the Enlightenment, the encyclopedists and so on, Voltaire, Rousseau. It's an attempt to sort of think broadly about deep psychological, cultural, physical, material, social assets and importance. It's about ultimate philosophical aspiration. And when you listen to part of it, you, I find whenever I hear part of it, I find something of myself in the questions that it asks and in the sheer beauty with which it deals with them. It's a rescue opera. As soon as I say rescue opera, think Fidelio, think parts of the magic flute. It's somebody who's got to rescue his beloved or her beloved and yet be so self-disciplined as not to show any emotion while you're doing it for fear that you'll be found out by the authorities. It's so many things. It's about heaven and hell, Hades, which might be horrible, Elysium that might be idyllic. <clears throat> so it's about all those things and an awful lot that therefore one could talk about uh, ideal subject for a multimedia work like an opera. So that's just briefly about the opera itself and about Gluck. He of course did a number of other works, many of which were partly based, based on the classics. There's a kind of, this is early classical revival leads well into 19th century classic, classicism and so on, architecture, uh, uh, design of all kinds, music. And so plenty to talk about. And um, I would like now to uh, ask the panel a few questions. And then, as I say, later on, we'll turn it over to yourselves. Um, let's start with Wayne. This is, after all, your place. <laughs> and Wayne, you, you, you'll know, may have seen many of his productions at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, where he's resident choreographer, as well as having his own company here, and it's your own company who will be dancing. We'll see the dancers on stage, I'm sure. Um, I've seen, there are some occasions you see a production where they're on stage throughout. Interesting production recently at Chicago, where Orpheus was actually a ballet choreographer, and he's rehearsing at the beginning of the opera, and his girlfriend is the principal ballerina, and she bloody turns up late, and they have a bit of a spat, and she, you know, they hit each other slightly, and she runs off in, in a bit of anger. And the next thing you know, she's killed herself in a car crash. And there are many ways of doing it. Are you going to do it ancient Greek? Are you going to do it 18th century enlightenment? None of the above. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> I thought it might not. So, Wayne, over to I you. Think, tell I mean, us, what, tell it, us what it's going to look like. Well, I think, well, first of all, it's so interesting, you know, the, the, the history of this opera in relationship to choreographic practice has been choreographed many times by phenomenal choreographers. You can imagine the Pina Bausch version, the, the production you were talking about. It's by the legend that is John Neumeyer. Um, there are so many um, kind of physicalized versions of this piece, partly because I think it's, um, its economy and its elegance and its directness of text allows you to open up other possibilities and other moments where the body can have a role, where the body can say something other, where the body can say something that perhaps singing can't or music can't in that moment. It was amazing to watch Sarah sing right then. And if you think about what is a dance, you know, if you think about opera singers and, and watching Sarah then, um, you see um, the physical work it takes to sing, right, to produce those sounds. It's very different from naturalism where you're just speaking. And so what's really interesting to me about that as a choreographer who's interested in how bodies move is how do you get kind of a, a clarity of intention when the body has to operate in a certain volume to be able to sing in the way that it's singing and at the same time be economical and be believable because that's what we care about at the end of the day. How is that 
um, story well communicated and do we believe the people who are performing it. It's wonderful about this opera, it's three characters, three women that we have in, in, in our version of it. It's, almost, it's very intimate, you know, you can imagine um, seeing that as a movie and being super close and really direct. And I think one of the things that we've been working on or uh, in the middle of working on in now in, in the work together is how is it that story really well told just in a very personal, interpersonal relationship. And then the other thing I've been thinking about is how is it that that sits in a much wider physical world? You know, how is it that that sits in a choreographic world where the dancers are able to do and to create architecture and spaces in um, the, the stage that allow the action to take place in. So you'll see that, you've probably seen a little bit from the designs, the design is very minimal yeah, and deliberately minimal. Um, one of the things you probably wouldn't have, have seen there, so th there's, this, uh, there's this, at the very beginning, there's this kind of see-through tube. Um, it's almost, I don't know if any, any, any of you know about cryonics, this amazing science, this idea that you can suspend your body in time. And at the moment when science has found the appropriate way to fix any of your ailments, you are brought back to life and able to meet whoever's there. Now, there are a lot of issues with cryonics. Yeah, well, there's something really interesting. I don't know if anybody signed up for cryonics in this room. No. I was thinking about it, but I'm not 100% sure. What's really interesting about it, though, is how we have this kind of quest for, in some way, immortality, for this, this you know, science is always partly about fighting against um, the notion of dying and death and how do we extend life, you know. Um, and, you know, this opera is so beautiful because it's obviously about, it's about mourning, so it's about grief, it's about loss, it's about violence, it's about peace, it's about death again. It's returned again, perhaps, into acceptance. And these are really juicy moments for us to be able to work with both vocally and in the, the kind of the dramaturgical structure of the piece, but also physically. And that's what we're trying to do. So we've got this minimal set. The back of the set actually is a huge, it's a thing called a stealth screen. Um, and it's a very new technology which has over 5,000 LED lights in it um, that are all individually programmable. So it's extraordinarily beautiful. You can do all these amazing things with this um, in light. You can, you can make it kind of dematter and make it feel almost like cosmic. You can feed video in it and it can be very particular. You could imagine at the beginning um, uh, 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 of the opera was this, this state of, of, of mourning, you know, perhaps next to the Aegean Sea, that you just see almost this like blurred out um, Sugimoto-esque black and white landscape that just changes over time. So there's a way in which we can work visually with this screen that just allows um, time to be slightly heightened or extended or twisted. There's a time where you can go into dreamlike states. There's a time where you can go into absolute naturalism. There's, there's kind of all of these options that we're able to do. And then of course, we've got the wonderful dancers. So the dancers are able um, with the choreographic work because the, the work is so physical to do some really, really interesting things. And that's what we're exploring at the moment. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, you may have noticed just behind near the drinks, there were some design, costume designs you, could, you couldn't see. And also the basic staging, which you say is very, it's basic, austere, adaptable. Rather than, I mean, some productions will open in great forest lands where they're all in mourning. Um, you've got a scene, which I described earlier, of course, where Eurydice is following Orpheus gradually out, upwards, wondering what's going on, why isn't he looking at me? You've got to do that, although the Colosseum stage is very big, it's not a mile wide. Um, how are you, I mean, are they turning but not looking? I mean, is he n walking around her like that? How are you going to stage something like that? I'll tell you next week when we're done, <laughs> but no, at the moment, I, I think, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I think well, one of the wonderful things about light, and I think it was one of the reasons we chose to use um, light as the vehicle to create scenography in this space, that was the reason we used it, is that it transforms in the most amazing way. So if you think about something like the Aurora Borealis, yeah, you can imagine that in Elysium in a really beautiful way. You can imagine that as a, uh, as a way of imprinting a feeling and a sensation on your body, right? So mm. light is phenomenal. The other great thing about that stealth screen is it's got holes in it that you can put smoke or mist through. So if you can imagine that huge screen at the back has a whole uh, lot of mist that's seeping through it and then you light on top of it, what it creates is more I guess, three-dimensional structures and uh, opportunities. So in that act that you're talking about, what we're trying to think about is it's almost like a maze. It's perilous. Yeah, It's not easy to get out of this journey. You know, Apparently, before you even hit Elysium, you've been sliding down for days and days the rock face. So it's a really perilous state. 
And we want to create these really magical um, worlds in light and smoke, which are not there but seem to be there, um, to create a kind of a geography in which these bodies work. And so, um, yeah, light has both a, a, a kind of a, a fragile transparency, but also helps us carve spaces in the environment that become um, restrictive spaces or spaces of partial view or spaces where actually you can just see a hand move into the light and you can just see another hand that then brings through a body. So hopefully creating magic in that way. So when you said uh, minimal, austere, it always worries me that because I think <laughs> minimal can also be extraordinarily beautiful if you have the sensation to offer and deliver. And that's what we're aiming for. So it's not actually in my head at the moment, it's not at all an austere production. It's one that should absolutely pierce your heart right from the very, very beginning. It should, the way hopefully we're even gonna stage the very beginning, I, I think it's going to uh, really touch you immediately and the environments are not gonna be distancing. They're totally the opposite. They're gonna be about almost internal uh, landscape that in some way are exposed and made visible to you and shared mm. with you. And will we see the dancers throughout or during the, 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 the great famous pieces only or what role yeah. will they play? Well, th they have a, a, a various roles. I mean, one of the things I didn't want to do was have a dancer double the singer all the way through the opera. You know, I, I felt it was really important that you got the emotional intensity of some of those moments just between two people or in one character, right? So, um, it, so sometimes the dance happens and then singing happens. Sometimes they happen simultaneously and sometimes it's just dancing. Um, but we've tried to kind of weave a really, you talked about um, opera being an amazing collaborative art form and of course it is. What we're trying to do is make sure that the space for all of these, um, these opportunities, the, the, the space itself is like a visual art object. It's like being more in an installation. And so um, I think you need to create space. The music does that anyway. You need to create space where you have intimacy and then the music allows you to be really open and almost widescreen. And when you're widescreen, you want the dancers to fill that space in an incredible way with color and texture and life and jumping and all sorts of things. Mm. Wonderful, looking forward to it. Um, let's talk a little about the music, if I may. I'd like to talk, ask uh, Harry a few things about the score. I mean, I mentioned the original opera, the, the Italian opera done in Vienna in 1762, then it was enlarged for France a dozen years later, or whatever it was. Um, we're actually hearing a version or a pull together, whatever, by Berlioz in the 17, uh, 1850s, I, I guess. And interestingly, just e even simply taking the, 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 the role of Orpheus was originally performed by an Italian castrato. Um, it later became performed sometimes by a tenor. Flores did it at Covent Garden just a few years ago. High, high, very high tenor. Um, most often, and I think this really goes back to Berlioz's time, and certainly now in most of the productions that I've seen, the, the Orpheus is, is, is sung by a mezzo-soprano. I mentioned Kathleen Ferrier or Janet Baker and, and Alice, Alice Coote doing it for us today. Tell us a little bit about the score that you will be using what it does contain, what to listen out for, what it doesn't contain. I mean, is it in still in some ways an 18th century composition or is it a great big Berlioz-in 19th century composition? It's completely um, 18th century and I think if you, th there's, there's very little that you would hear of uh, as Berlioz. I mean, he was very faithful to uh, the score. Of course, the piece, the two things I'd say about the original version in, in Vienna, one is that, yes, a lot of these pieces were written about Greek myth, but what was interesting is that the early operas um, were an attempt, I think slightly mistaken, to try and reproduce what they thought Greek plays were done like. In, in other words, they were kind of almost intoned, a kind of uh, Italian sprechgesang. And in Florence in the 16th century, they had this idea, and, and Mon Rossi originally, but also Monteverdi decided, well, what if I try and notate the, the intonation of the way people sang? It was very text-based. Um, and then someone said, but that's a bit ridiculous. Why would people sing when they could speak? Um, this is before opera took off, obviously. <laughs> we don't regard that as ridiculous anymore, at least most of us don't. Um, but in, those in the day, it was kind of stupid. And they said, well, what about if we do the story of or Orfeo? Because, of course, Orfeo was the man whose speech was song. Now that would make sense. So that's why all the early operas were, were about that. Um, 
And in terms of Gluck reforming opera, he wasn't reforming it into something new. He was trying to take it back to what it originally was. Because for most people, myself included, Monteverdi is like the, the pinnacle of opera. It never got as good as that again in terms of taking wonderful text, setting it absolutely beautifully with no fat on it. It's absolutely pure emotion. And of course, by the time Gluck was writing, as you say, Handel had been writing, uh, well, every Italian in the world had been writing these hugely long opera series. The divas had taken over, the inmates had taken over the asylum, if you like, <laughs> and it was all about, I'm gonna stand on stage and sing for 10 minutes and I better get more applause than the person who's just gone off stage. And on it went, and actually the story didn't seem to matter anymore. The text certainly didn't matter at all. And he was like, look, let's just get it back to what the original ideals were. Let's be really honest. Let's not say anything extraneous. So to give an example, I mean, when Orfeo turns around and Eurydice dies, he, he, he looks at her and says, Orfeo, and then in Italian, io moro, cord, cord, or je meurs, cord, cord, I die, cord, cord. Which, two things, one is, anybody who's been with someone who's died, that is exactly how it happens. One second they're there, the next second they're gone. It's so raw and so brilliant the way he does it. Compare that to the time it takes Mimi or Violetta to die. <laughs> And we take that as being real. I mean, it's, it's completely topsy-turvy in my mind. I think, you know, I just think Gluck knew exactly what he was doing. And it's so raw and it's so shocking that that should be the death scene is two syllables plus two chords. And then, and then he, has to, he has to move on. So I think it was brilliant what Gluck did in, in Vienna. Quite why he got his arm twisted to do it in Paris, I don't know, because of course he went to Paris and they, they put all these conditions on him. Uh, Paris, of course, wouldn't accept a castrato. They wanted a tenor, a high tenor, impossibly high tenor, I might say. So all the keys had to be completely re reordered, not very well, I might say, it was done in a hurry. All the text had to be translated in, into French very, very poorly. The French words are, are nothing as good as the Calzavici, the original Calzavici. Um, and then he had to add all this ballet because, of course, the French demanded that there was a lot of ballet in the thing. So his idea of paring everything down and making it nice and taut and no fat on it, suddenly this enormous fat piece appeared in Paris. But I imagine he was very well paid for it and, you know, he had to make a living. So, so that's what he did. One of the problems with making it for a tenor was that it was a very, very high tenor role. And in the day, the pitch was a bit lower than it was now, but it was even then too high for most tenors. And then as we go through the years, the pitch gets higher and higher as it does all over Europe. And then it becomes absolutely impossible for a tenor to sing it. So the piece actually doesn't get done anymore because no one can sing it. And it wasn't until Berlioz, who'd, who'd known the piece, was a good admirer of it, he said, the only way to get this piece done again is to get it back to the original keys or somewhere near the keys and get a big star to sing it. And the big star of the day was Pauline Viardot. And he said, if we put those two things together, if I just transpose, I keep all the French music, but I transpose all the keys back for a mezzo, get Viardot to do it, we're onto a winner. And he was right. Um, I think one reason he, he probably went to Paris is because there was a a, a Vienna-born princess there called Marie Antoinette, who, ra um, who rather fancied having him there as an important composer. Tell us something about the orchestra. I mean, is it 18th century orchestra you'll be using? I mean, you'll be using modern instruments and so on. Uh, you won't have a lyre, but will you, you'll have a harp. Mm -hmm. um, tell us something, and what sort of size of the orchestra is it that you'll be using in a very big theater? It's a, it's, a, it's a classical orchestra. It's the same as we'd use for Marriage of Figaro or something like that. It has some uh, sort of throwback instruments in a way for the period. I mean, trombones, which makes one think of the Monteverdi Orfeo, of course, sackbuts and, 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 and cornets. Also, you think of magic flute, uh, all the Masonic music with, with trombones, all the, all the funereal uh, music for that. Um, I mean, harp, of course, but if you think about the Monteverdi Orfeo, 
the wonderful Possente Spirito, you mm. know, when, when, when Orfeo is, is charming the spirits, that's a huge, one of the most virtuosic harp parts ever written in the, in the, in the 17th century. So the, there's a kind of nod to that. There are clarinets, um, because Paris had, had started having clarinets at that point. And Berlioz, one thing he does is add a clarinets to a few more of the, of, the, of the movements, but not that you would particularly notice. The main thing that Berlioz does is, is, is reordering of the keys and also quite a lot of articulations. I mean, he edits it like a, like a 19th century editor. You know, he sort of tells you how he thinks the music should be played. So he puts some extra dynamics in, he puts some different articulations, he puts some different stresses. And it's hard to know what to do, really, because, of course, um, it's still Gluck. So are we trying to make it sound like Berlioz or are we trying to make it sound like Gluck? And I don't quite know what the answer is yet. But I mean, I would say that the Gluck is, that Berlioz is so faithful to the Gluck that I think it will sound like a, like a, a, a classical piece. And on to the, the, the singers. As I say, there are only three principal roles and they almost don't sing together. They do very slightly. And I think, Love, you, you sing with Orpheus a little bit, uh, almost, when you're telling him, you know, I can, I, I can help you get her back. And I think, am I right? It's only towards the very end when all three of you, Orpheus, Eurydice, and Love, all overlap. I won't call it a trio. It's, it, 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 it is, is a trio, yeah. it isn't. And he wrote, <coughs> but he wrote that for Paris. And he wrote that for Paris. That, oh, how interesting. Yes, yes. But, I mean, Love, you are... It's not a very big role. You come on fairly early on, and you explain to the surprise Orpheus how you can help him, and you come on much later after the death of Eurydice and Orpheus is bemoaning his tragic fate and how it's his own fault and he's going to kill himself because he's caused the death of his loved one. And you appear and say, well, actually, I can help you again. And you've got a couple of cute little arias fairly early on. It's a, is it a it's slightly, whenever I've seen it, it's been a slightly jokey role. How do you feel about it? What's it like musically? What's it like to sing, Soraya? Um, there are playful moments, certainly, in the music. Um, there's mellifluous moments, lyrical moments. Um, and it's very efficient um, use of the voice in a very short amount of time, I'd say. Um, the way that we're exploring the role at the moment, I certainly wouldn't, s it's far more dimensional than just the playful spirit that comes on and toys with Orpheus. Um, and every time we've, we've approached it, there's been new ideas and it's very much also dependent on Orpheus, I think, and his state of mind. Um, why love would be conjured, maybe, or we've discussed ideas of, is love a mirror of Orpheus? Is love a part of Orpheus's mind? So that's still something we're exploring at the moment. So what do you do in between the beginning and the end of the opera? You go out and have dinner, do you? I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, Wayne does, does love appear in any shape or form other than the two areas of the opera where she sings? Yeah, um, well, I think love um, is a constant factor throughout the whole thing, but it's love transformed. Yeah. So there's an idea that... Um, you know, Sarai Start sets up a, a whole series of um, really amazing kind of kind of seductive situations. You know, Eros, you know, um, is the centre of erotic love, right, as well. So there's a, there's a sense in which there's a sensualness to some of those um, early aries that are really exciting, quite thrilling. Um, and then she she changes um, before she she uh, accompanies or, or allows um, a version of herself to go into Hades and through Elysium, and then she comes back. Um, and helps reunite those two um, lovers together. So yeah, she's central. She's like she's like the golden thread throughout the whole opera, really. Before I move to Sarah, let me let me also ask you. And Eurydice musically only sings in the final act. I think you're doing it as a three-act evening. Uh, sometimes I've seen a performance where she's visible early on, but doesn't sing, and of course dies. Are you able to reveal any secrets about the, the role of Eurydice on stage? Well, I'll reveal that Eurydice is not passive, so she's not behind um, <laughs> Orpheus being dragged along. That's the first thing. She's a modern woman. So yeah, yeah. So 
Sarah will tell you a bit more about that. So that's the first <laughs> thing. And I think the other thing is, you know, because I mean, both of these amazing women move so well, you want to absolutely use that potential, right? Mm. So um, in, act, in our act three, we're actually in four acts, but in our act three, um, Sarah's there. Yeah, she's there very early on and physicalizing some of the work that we're doing. So we get a, a chance to see her for much longer, thankfully. I don't need to tell you what a wonderful singer Sarah is. You've already heard that. Um, I mentioned the, 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 the recent Mary Widow. Um, the, I think the thing you did before that, certainly the time I saw you before that was Lucia di Lamamua. She's been very busy and she's taking on two Eurydices and she's um, not backward, as was just pointed out. Tell us a little bit about the role of, the, of, of Eurydice in this opera. And this is an interesting role for me because when we talk about this piece, we talk about Orfeo and we talk about his journey and what he does and he's the central part of the piece. So from my point of view, when we, my first day here, when I met Wayne and we were talking about the show, I had lots of questions. You know, who, who is she? What is her function within the piece? Is she just there to, to give reason for the show? To, to give reason for the story, she died, therefore he wants to go and get her. And that's, well, as soon as I met Wayne, it was like, oh, okay, so it's going to be that kind of show, this kind of a person. So then I suddenly became interested in a real person. Who were they when they were married? Why, why did she die? What, how much time has passed between them? What is it like to be dead? What is the, sent, the state in which she has been existing? And sim I suppose I can sum it up in, what does she feel? What is it that she experiences? What sensual feelings does she have when she's dead, in her dead state? And then how does she come back to life? And how does she experience touch and warmth and sensualness? And what we've got so far is sort of, I feel like there's been quite a bit of time passing. And if you do come back, it, you have that sense that you, you want, Orfeo wants to be with her again, but he's been through all this loss. He's experienced all these emotions. He's not the same person that he was when she died. And she's not the same person because she's had this utter experience that we can't even imagine. So for me, it's quite interesting now thinking about who they are when they meet, what it is that... Uh, that that she's experienced, does she want to go back? So when she sees him, I imagine that she thinks he's come to join her in this paradise that she's in. And then she realizes that he's come to take her back to life. Does she want to go back? So it's uh, lots and lots of questions at the moment, I think, which is, um, and it's, it's just, it's so exciting because it would be too easy to say, she's just a cipher for the story and, hold my hand, don't leave me, I can't do this without you, which is really not what we want to see. It's not what you know, women want to see these days. We want to see a real relationship. We want to see real people on stage. So it's quite, uh, it's very satisfying for me to be in a position to be able to really explore all of those sort of, all of, all of those things. We found an amazing Margaret Atwood poem um, that she wrote. So Margaret Atwood is the, the writer that, uh, amongst other things, wrote the Mad Adam trilogy and Handmaiden's Tale and stuff. Um, and it was a poem really from Eurydice's point of view. And it's really moving, isn't it? It's really, um, it's very focused and very moving. And it really gives you an alternative potential for the depth of this relationship. And in a way, we started with that. So I encourage you to try and read that if you can. It's, it's easily online. And it really it gave us a kind of a, a fresh beginning, a fresh um, beginning to start to explore what that relationship might be. Uh, Margaret At Atwood. Yeah. Is it going, are they going to be dressed in handmade hats? And are we in Gilead? <laughs> Margaret Atwood has written many more things <laughs> than just that. I think you're probably fine. Yeah. Um, plenty more to talk about, and I've got a lot more questions, but I'm sure that some of you do, and we've got a, we're very privileged having the panel. Um, who'd like to kick off with some questions? And if you don't, I will. <laughs> yes, the lady here. But the uh, microphone, oh yeah, we, we need you to. Yes, you do, everybody does. You need to project. Um, you said paradise, Sarah, which was interesting because I thought she was meant to be in Hades. Yes, good point. <laughs> yes, why does she go to hell and not to heaven? 
<laughs> Took me a while to answer that question as well. Um, so my understanding is that uh, we are in the place where we are dead. And within that place are good places and bad places. So Elysium is in the same, I'm right, aren't I? Good. Um, uh, in the same place, Elysium is the, is the good part of the underworld as we experience it. So she's, she's in the blissful place and he's coming to get her from the blissful place within the land of the dead, as opposed to sort of now we think about heaven being upstairs and, and hell being downstairs. It, so it's sort of, it's all on one level. It's all kind of different rooms in the same building, if you like. So, so if you think about it in the Dante, for example, one of the interesting things about um, um, the Elysium Fields is that it's, it's a place where you see um, the great poets, Homer, for example, and it's because it's pre-Christian, right? So that they were non-believers because they couldn't have been believers. So it's really interesting that that's a, 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 a place of, um, uh, yeah, a, a place of great beauty within this kind of chaos. Yes, I mean, I think I mentioned that when Orpheus descends to find her, he has to charm his way through the furies, the angry dead people who absolutely, what the hell are you doing here? Who are you? You can't come here. And he charms them with his lute or his music or his singing, and they eventually let him through to the other, the, the positive part of the underworld, Elysium, the Elysian fields, I think Champs-Élysées, I mean, the, it's used in every language to mean a kind of a bliss, the alternative place if you've been, you died, but you're a good person. So I guess Elysium is kind of a bit like heaven, but it's down there somewhere, because they are rising back up to the earth, I think, aren't they, at the end? Yes, and you, yes, I've got one, use mine, <laughs> it shall. Is, is love um, actually wanting to help, or is love totally impersonal? Would love to see love, if it could be arranged, but doesn't care a damn one way or the other? <laughs> this is something we've, we've been discussing, is... We need you in our room. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she gets paid. We talk about the, there's this duality of love, you know, um, in the way the text is. Of there's the God of love, you know, there's the messenger, and then there's the human love. And finding moments within the piece where love has to deliver this message and say, this is the terms and conditions of you going to the, to the woman that you love and saving her. But then also, look, you, you can do this. You know, you can earn her back. That's the human aspect, I believe. And also, I think it's also very much how one might perceive love as well as an emotional state. You know, is, is, does love dictate our actions? Does love respond to the actions that we put upon it? And that's something we're still, we're still discovering and also is um, working with, with Alice, who is so thrilling in rehearsals and she, um, she can change at any moment. She's constantly searching to find the reasons why Orpheus um, is doing this. And when love first arrives, there's this sense that he's committed himself to suicide or, you know, it's a suicide attempt and then love turns up. Or is it that he's saying, I will kill myself and I need, uh, but actually there's an element here that will keep me going and that is love and that's why love appears. I don't know if that's clarified anymore for you. Um, but it's, find, it's finding the duality, I think, of the human and the God in love that's, for me, is interesting right now. I mean, I've seen love sometimes just sitting on a bench with Orpheus in the garden or descending from the heavens and or perhaps having wings like Eros. Mm. Um, what's she going to look like, Wayne? <laughs> How are we going to know who she is? Oh, you'll know. Um, <laughs> I, I think one of the things, you know, we, we were talking about light um, a little bit earlier on, and for me, love <coughs> is also synonymous with hope. Um, and I think that plays out um, through, the, through the opera. And I think one can imagine the first time that we see um, love as a reflective mirror, as, a, as a, a something that light bounces off, something that is really abstract, that then, in an act of becoming, starts to have an effect in this world. So... Um, the short answer is she's, she is 
basically a big glitter ball. <laughs> no, right. um, no, so she's, um, the costume is, is reflective. It's, um, it's got shards of, um, uh, of light that we're able to bounce light from. Um, and that actually also Orpheus can look inside and see himself. Yes, self-reflected back. I think it's actually quite an interesting moment to talk about costumes quickly because we, we really wanted to set this in some kind of like speculative future. The idea is that this is a timeless piece, right? That it's, it, the, the themes of it are so universal that it is totally timeless. And so we, um, although we've taken kind of a reference from the ancients as a way of draping or as a way of um, looking at how cloth falls, what we wanted to do is create um, costumes that are really not what you'd expect in this world, something that's really other. Um, and uh, I think Louise has done an amazing job. One of the things that she's, she's done, which actually those drawings don't um, give you the full picture, is it's a whole range of uh, costumes which also have text written on them, almost like love notes, really, really beautiful. Um, they're kind of very, very handmade. They're, they're kind of uh, uh, of another time. Um, and we're, we're excited to see how, how that's going to have a massive visual impact in the show. Something, somebody here I was chatting to before was saying to me, Daniel, if he, if Gluck wanted to integrate music, drama, text, dance, and so on in the way that, you know, Wagner later on talked about the Gesamtkunstwerk, sort of mixing all the arts into a single work, and not have secular recitative and make everything flow, why is it that some of the best known pieces from it are set piece arias with a beginning and an end? Um, is there a contradiction there at all, Harry? Uh, I, well, I don't, I don't find that particularly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the fact that what happens is that the recitative c can move more seamlessly, partly because it's orchestrated in the same way. You don't, you don't I mean, you're just aware of it when in, the, in a Handel opera seria because you've got yeah. harpsichord and then suddenly the orchestra comes <laughs> in. With Gluck, the, the orchestra has to play all those chords and they have to inflect them. And because he's got the orchestra playing them, he also writes little melodic motifs and things. So I it's more like the accompagnati of, of Mozart, where yeah. it's not just literally laying down chords. He's actually yeah. got little ariosos and music. So and leads to the idea of a light motif yeah. in the long run. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you don't know w whether the aria has started or whether it's just another piece of recitative. Yeah. I agree that Que Faro and, and, and certain other big arias, the big aria he wrote especially for Paris for the end of Act One, um, in the Vienna version, Orfeo just says, I'm, right, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go and find her. And there's this amazing 30 seconds of rapid scales mm. in the orchestra. Mm. And that's him going out down to hell and in you go. In Paris, they wanted a big number for the mm. end of Act One. So there's this, there's this enormous traditional aria, which is actually fun. And it's kind of wonderful. And it was a great showpiece for Viado. But, it, you know, again, it's, it's, that's very clearly a, a set piece. And a lot of <laughs> vocal show off. Um, so, yes, Lizzie at the back. <laughs> this is a, a, a process question, really. I, I, I just, uh, for Sarah and Sarah, um, I just wondered how, and I don't know what Wayne's asking you to do physically, but I just wondered what you felt the relationship is between your body and the sound, and if, if what he's asking you to do is um, pushing the boundaries of that for you. Um, for me, what's been amazing working with Wayne is how he observes like our kind of f physical habits that we've picked up. Um, I'm a Howard artist here at English National Opera. I'm kind of on the young emerging artist scheme. Um, but within that, we go and work in other companies and um, particularly with revivals, you're often kind of rushed into something, you're rushed into a role, go here, go there, thanks very much, you know, pay off you go. To be in a production where we're starting for the first time, you know, it's growing from us. Um, it's been really interesting, the way Wayne see how I move, to see how I move and to, why have you done that? You know, I, could we do it this way? And I think it could have this kind of pace and it really does work with the music and with the singing. Um, everything's very grounded, and that's the main thing for us as a singer. That's what we work on in a practice room. You know, that's we work on our posture and getting everything aligned, so that then we can go into a rehearsal space and adapt that. Um, but because Wayne's so experienced and has worked with singers before and has such a great understanding of the body, nothing 
remotely feels uncomfortable, it actually highlights to me, oh, I've picked up these habits to kind of keep me in a safe place and actually they're not doing me any good, <laughs> you know? And I need to flip some of these things around and really start considering my choices more consciously. So for me, it really makes sense. The two things marry together mm. very well. Well, you're unusual, Soraya. You were actually trained in ballet early Yeah, on. I, did, I did my time. I, wouldn't yeah. <laughs> I cannot do it now. It's yes. been 16 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are, are yeah. you and Sarah, are you being partly choreographed in an almost balletic fashion as well as, of course, acting and singing? Or is that a silly question? It's, all, it's more like, for us, it's, if you imagine everything we're doing is about communicating. So the, the sharing the text and the way that we share the text is by singing, but also our bodies are expressing and communicating our, our emotions and our feelings. And I feel what we're doing is sort of the physical work is almost just a larger expression of that. So uh, we're showing... You know, if you feel love or you feel something, it's the way in which your body expresses something that we sort of, we do automatically on a daily, daily, but it's, it's just so much larger. And what's really very satisfying for us is that um, it, I think there, there's kind of two kinds of choreographers. There are choreographers who have their choreography and we come in and we do their choreography. And then there are choreographers who see you and it's I feel like Wayne's got scarily x-ray vision and it's like he sort of sees into the fibers of your body and and he has a way in which uh, you feel like you're making these moves together in a way it comes out that y you feel like you couldn't possibly do it in any other way does that make sense that was a compliment by the way <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I'm really lucky. I've got these amazingly, th these amazing physical animals in the room, right? So the, the, their their physical instincts are great. So um, what's really important um, is it speaks a little bit to what Sarah was saying. This relationship between intention and attention in the body is really important. So you you know, we all know, having watched all the Brexit debates recently, when people are lying, right? They have this like physical <laughs> leakage that they can't help. But there's a disconnect between intention and attention in the body, right? And we as kind of uh, uh, animals that um, are used to seeing biological motion and understanding it, we're 80% to all our communication through the body, 20% is all of the other stuff. If we're 80% reading all that time, when we see people on stage, we so quickly realize when something isn't sincere or when something isn't, you know, isn't really, really direct. And I guess what I'm doing with these, these wonderful performers is just noticing things that they do, so noticing some of the choices that they make um, and just articulating them. That's the choice you made. It's interesting, is that the choice you thought you were making? Mm -hmm. And then just finding a way of perhaps trying a different option, trying to be a bit more 360, try to be a bit more, um, be more confident in the way in which weight um, helps you push forward an idea. Um, and, and so far, I think it's been, it been lovely. And actually, it's probably the opposite of what you think. It's about doing less, but with more intentionality than doing more moves as a way of kind of like hiding or as a way of screening. We're trying to do, we're really, really trying to get the, the, the kind of the rawness, the absolute essence mm -hmm. of that moment, which is a physical discipline closer to Bhutto than it is, you know, perhaps to ballet. I've occasionally seen a production where the chorus and the dance group are on stage together and they're all being, as it were, quote, choreographized or whatever, choreographed. <laughs> and, and the chorus are sort of slightly awkward. Um, other productions, the chorus will be completely separate, which I think seems to me a sensible idea, even though I talked about the integration of all the arts in opera. Am I right about your intentions? I, I think, you know, I think with, uh, with anybody, it's really important that you have time with them to be able to embed a physical language. It's about that. So the op opera choruses that I've worked with um, over the years are really amazing, all have amazing kind of talent in them. But the time that they have to be able to really work on something which is complex physically is usually really reduced. And so when you're thinking about whether or not you want to integrate elite dancers with a chorus who are elite singers but have to have a shared physical discipline, you have to work out whether or not there's enough 
time and resources to do that. So it's mm -hmm. certainly not an indication about the course not being able to move. It's about how is it that when we're exploring like this, the amount of time that we need to do it well. Um, and also I think there's something really beautiful about this piece where there's a slight kind of dislocation of the chorus, the, the sound of the chorus, where you have a kind of a, a, kind of a meta, um, a, a metasphere in which the opera sits. I really love this idea that the, um, the chorus is all-knowing or that the chorus is, is um, kind of a narration which is really, really, really huge. Um, so for our production, the chorus will be, um, will be in the pit, but... Um, I, I think it makes total sense for what we're trying to achieve on stage, and it's certainly not because we didn't want them moving, or we were worried that they wouldn't move well. So the chorus can concentrate on the singing? Well, well, just that I think that the audience can feel comfortable in the physical decisions that are made, which are about a clarity of intention and attention all the time, and that there's no, there's no moment in, in any of those stage pictures where there's a diversion where actually there's just a looseness that actually takes away from the tautness of that thing that we want to do. We want to just create something that is just sublime. This is our aspiration. I'm not saying we could do it. But we want to create something that is sublimely beautiful and economical and um, very pure. Um, and that's, that, that's what we're all working towards. Sure, no, I understand that. We're beginning to run out of time, but we've got time for another couple of questions or so. Anybody else like to press the panel about something? Gentleman here. Forgive me, because I haven't looked at the screen, the, the thing outside, but you started off saying something about minimalism. Then you talked about lights, multi-million multi LEDs. Uh, you then described um, Love's costume with lots of glitter. And I think you mentioned something about text on costumes or something like that. Um, what is beginning to worry me is that there is so much going on uh, and one has come across productions like this where there is so much going on you uh, get distracted from the real piece. Um, and what I'd be quite interested to hear, if it's not too early, is what the singers think about it before you have your say. By the real piece, do you mean the music? Sarah, are you going to be all glossed up? We're in a whole different world from that. <laughs> it's, if you imagine, what we've really got is a psychological drama with, with three people on the stage. And, and all the elements that we've talked about are very subtle um, hints of, of colour, if you like. It's, it's colouring the world. So I think that when we're talking about the lights at the back, and, and from what I understand, it's extremely subtle that it's just, it's almost like you barely even notice it's there. That, and you're creating these um, pictures in his mind of, of, of what the world might be. Um, and like the costumes, just they, you get the feeling that you're in one place and in another place. You could be anywhere. But I'd say it's, all, it's, it's like very gentle brushstrokes, all of the things that we've talked about today, as opposed to there's, there's definitely no kind of slapping you around the face with any of it. So I think you're all right. I think also, I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm going to apologize for this. Well, you're supposed to come to these talks to be enlightened, and I think we've put you off, which is not the idea. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, I think the thing about the whole of that set is the lights, the 3,000 LEDs, is you can always turn them off, right? And the wonderful thing about minimalism is actually how is it that you make your decisions, one, in relationship to something else? It's how are those relationships in balance? Um, and so I, th I think you just got to, like, like, trust us that what we're going to be able to do is make sure that that psychological drama is absolutely acute and direct, but that the visual impact of it is going to be sublime. That's what we're aiming for. Um, it's, it's sublime. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about um, too much dazzle. And I think probably sequins, whatever I said about dazzle, put everybody off. It's not really that. <laughs> I'm interested in the earlier production in Vienna and whether there was movement or whether there was dance in that. Because clearly dance is a completely different way of moving forward. Was there movement or was there dance in the original production? I just wonder There's certainly uh, uh, two sets of ballets in it, and they're called ballets. 
I don't know whether the reports of whether they really w whether they were danced or whether it was it was movement. And certainly, um, like the, the famous dance of the Blessed Spirits, which everybody loves, but they particularly love the middle D minor section, which everybody goes crazy about. Whenever you do the Vienna version, I always get hate mail saying, "Why have you cut that middle section of the dance of the Blessed Spirits?" And the answer is, he hadn't written it. In <coughs> in Vienna, but I and occasionally I I cheat and actually I put it in just because I, I can't you know I know people want to hear it, um, but I don't know because certainly in terms of the, I think in terms of the ethos it was probably not ballet in, in in a choreographed way but it was certainly telling the story and uh, the last sequence in in the, at the end of the piece I think there's quite a tradition now of retelling the story because uh, as, as you mentioned the there are very many different endings to the story of Orf Orpheus I mean the the one that is used in the operas is actually not it was is kind of made up it's actually a much sadder end I mean Orpheus in one story gets ripped to pieces by these avenging women and um, it's it's a much like all Greek myths it doesn't end particularly happily but in in opera at least they tried to make it happen I think the the Valley of the Furies, or, or, um, in the be beginning of Act Two, I think, was also something that was extended, at least, uh, in the French version. Yes, I think we we have to um, ascend back to reality now uh, from these Elysian fields. Um, thank you very much for coming tonight. Particularly, thank you to Sarah, to Harry, to Soraya. And I'm delighted to be actually in your studio today, Wayne. So bravo to our panel. <coughs> do, do make sure that you come to the production. It opens, I was just reminding one or two people on the panel, it opens on October the 1st. They said, October the 1st? The answer is yes. So do come to the performances or a performance and come to the whole quartet of Orpheus operas at ENO. Thank you for being here tonight. <laughs>